standard of care is defined for that case on that day by that jury. Medicine is like law. It's show business for ugly people. They actually think that you would treat your family well. That's an illusion. Not only was he a retired gynecologist, but he was an idiot and a clown. I'd pee in your eye, and it would meet the standard of care. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It's Risk Management Monthly, and we've got another exciting edition for you this month. I'm here with Rick Bucutter. Hey, Mel. And, of course, Greg Henry, who's the star of the show. Mel, good to see you, sir. Let's talk this month about standard of care. I've been looking at Emergency Physicians Monthly, which has got a little sideline here about what's in the news, medical malpractice, and they talk about a $260 million verdict in Florida. This case sounds like it was basically a missed subarachnoid hemorrhage, and it brings up to me, as it has brought up to lots of people, what is the standard of care? Who defines the standard of care? Let's get back to that case. First of all, whenever you see a decision of $260 million, understand this. A jury can come back with whatever it wants. That doesn't mean that anyone's collectible for $260 million. If you want to sue me for $260 million, you can, but you're going to be $259 million short when it comes time <laughs> to actually collecting out of my accounts. What something like that is, is it has no relationship to what the system was set up to do. How in the world can some one person, no matter what they lost, be worth $260 million? Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) The bottom line of one of those situations is this is sending a societal message. Something in that case so enraged or inflamed the jury that they considered that they had to send not just a recompense for financial loss, but they had to send some sort of message, whatever that message is, because they are unhappy about the larger issue of care, how it affects the larger society. Getting back to the question of standard of care, let's take this from two different perspectives. There is standard care, maybe it comes out of textbooks, maybe it comes out of courses, may come from anywhere, but standard care is not necessarily the standard of care. Standard of care relates to a particular issue at that moment in time. I'll give you an example. I bet we can't find any textbook that says, if you got battery acid in your eye, I should urinate in your eye. But you know what? If we were in the middle of the desert, we'd stop to work on the car and you'd gotten battery acid in your eye and I didn't have any other fluid, I'd pee in your eye. And it would meet the standard of care because that's what the situation required at that moment in time. Let me write that down. Uh, I'm not going camping with Greg. (laughs) Well, you you understand the point is what is the standard of care always depends on what's going on at that moment in time. What's the standard of care if you've got 12 patients from an auto accident? And I had this situation. I was the only doctor in an emergency department when a group of children, a bus, was hit by a cement truck. Now, I have 12 children who are bleeding six of whom, by the way, are going to go to the operating room within the next two and a half hours. I mean, did I do a digital rectal on every one? Did I look in the fundi of every child? You have to do what you have to do under that set of circumstances, particularly in emergency medicine. The standard of care is what is what a reasonable physician would do of like or similar training given that set of circumstances. And there's no one textbook that can ever tell you that. When you're on the two-yard line in the Michigan-Ohio State game, nothing calls the play 
but understanding the situation at that moment in time. There's no book on football that answers that question. Although one of the things that you're bringing up is circumstances that would seem to be uh, unusual. But what happens when somebody comes in with chest pain and he's 45 or 50 or 55, he has some associated symptoms that you ask him about. Now that basically is going to be something that is repetitively seen in emergency department after emergency department after emergency department. There are no extenuating circumstances with the hemophiliac <laughs> bus accident going on here. And so there is more likely in that case to be a more uniform approach to the evaluation of those patients and deviation from that will be more likely to be apparent. But understand, Rick, that at any one moment in time, your hospital and your backup may dictate certain things are done. I know places that have chest pain units so all of those patients get their six-hour rule out, their three sets of zymes, their three EKGs, and then get moved on to a stress test. Stress positive, they get a cath. Stress negative, they go home. And for that particular hospital and setting, that may be fine. There may be other hospitals where after a six-hour rule out, they send them home and they come back within the next two days for their stress test. Is either one of those right or wrong? They're different. That doesn't mean they're right or wrong. The law recognizes the concept that physicians do not all agree on how medicine should be practiced and it is a constantly shifting sand. What was considered standard of care five years ago in acute coronary syndrome may not be considered standard of care today. I'll give you an example. Two years ago, if you'd said, we're going to use beta blockers on all of those chest pains, I'd say, yeah, that's probably about right. There's some recent literature out that says, you know, we may not be doing some of these people a favor. So what is the standard of care? Two years ago, we would have been sued for not giving a beta blocker, and today we could be sued for giving a beta blocker? Come on. There's got to be some give and take here that recognizes that this is a shifting sand where there is no one point. By the way, in court, the standard of care is set by the testimony of the experts on both sides. The jury isn't given a book with the standard of care in it. They listen to experts on both sides who will purport to know the standard of care. And a lot of those people aren't what you and I would consider to be experts. So the standard of care, you've said this before in some of your lectures at ASAP and other places. In the end, if you want to think of it simply, the standard of care is defined for that case on that day by that jury. Exactly right. One of the weaknesses of the system is each trial is its own reality. So if they were to say to you, Dr. Henry, uh, can elephants fly? Now, you know elephants don't fly, and I know elephants don't fly. But at that moment in time, in that courtroom, they might say, well, you haven't seen every elephant in the world. Couldn't there be an elephant that flies? And they build a reality which is totally separate from the larger world, and that's the problem with these presentations. Sometimes the better actors and the better presentational skill wins over perfectly. So standard of care is defined by the jury at the time. It's not defined by what is written in any particular textbook, even Rosen. It's not defined by what's written in three or four textbooks. If they all said the same thing, let's do an example. Let's say worst headache of your life comes to the emergency department. You scan them and it's negative. And a lot of studies say you can be finished there, radiological studies. Other people say they're absolutely not spectrum bias, other issues. You've got to tap all those people to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The textbooks in emergency medicine might say you've got to tap that person. The textbooks in radiology say new generation CT scanners are good enough. So what's the process then that's happening in the courtroom that defines the standard of care that day? Is it just a great lawyer with great skills of spinning the yarn, as it were? More than a great lawyer, it's a great expert. 
who actually can explain to the jury what the conflict is. The standard of care is not one method or mode of treatment or diagnosis for that matter. It's a series or a subset, a pool of things which may be considered acceptable by a reasonable number of physicians. The law recognizes the concept of the intelligent minority. Just because a therapy is not given by the majority of physicians, if there is a substantial minority of physicians of equal quality who also feel this is a way to go, then doing either one of those would still meet the standard of care. You and I can think of probably six or eight different techniques for reducing an anterior shoulder dislocation. Do they all meet the standard of care? Well, the answer is, depends on in your particular hands at that moment in time, what is the most effective technique? Same way with intubation. The standard of care doesn't tell you which method you have to use. You may be skilled with a particular technique or piece of equipment. So in your hands on that day at that moment, this might be truly the standard of care for you at that time. Well, let's go back a minute to the point that you were making, Mel, regarding subarachnoid hemorrhages, because the literature on that is extraordinarily clear. You need to do a lumbar puncture in those cases if the CT is negative. However, what if you took a survey of 100 doctors? And 100 doctors, 70% of those doctors, in fact, don't do that lumbar puncture. It is standard care. This is what the doctors do. They don't do it. The fact is that those 70 doctors are incorrect in terms of their approach. So standard care is not necessarily exemplary care. It's not state-of-the-art care. It's not evidence-based care. It's not literature-defendable care necessarily. It's just what the majority did. I'm glad we picked up headache as the topic because in all the studies done, the difference within a particular department may be as much as five times between one doctor and another who gets CT scans on headache patients. This country is awash in negative CT scans. The indication to get the scan, I think, is pretty clear. And yet, we have people who every other headache gets a CT scan without positive findings, without high yield criteria, they don't meet the Edmeads criteria or any of those sorts of things, they get them on everybody. And then they wonder why there's all this controversy on whether the standard of practice, what people actually do, meets the standard of care. There's a huge mismatch in the country because practice variation is so large. If we went around the table, even, it'd say, well, this group, I think, ought to get this, that, or another thing. That's an opinion at a moment in time. Another thing that I find interesting, because we hear this all the time from residents, particularly from other services, you must do a CT scan on this person with abdominal pain, uh, rule out appendicitis, even though it's clinically obvious appendicitis, because it is now the standard of care to scan everybody with rule-out appendicitis. So the question that I specifically have is, is the standard of care therefore different in community practice versus academic practice, rural setting versus a university big city setting? Is it different in every place that you work at every moment in time? I think that it's not different from place to place at every moment in time, but there's no question that they may do more things, if we look at it, at the Mayo Clinic at 2 o'clock in the afternoon than they do in Keokuk, Iowa at 2 o'clock in the morning. That doesn't make one right or wrong. And by the way, if a resident comes down and says this is the standard of care, that's a child. I have belts and shoes older than those people. I don't want to really hear that from the residents. The other thing is, 
I don't believe that any one test or another is ever definitively the standard of care. There may be a clinical situation, 16-year-old boy, four hours, six hours of pain, a rebound tenderness, positive ileosoas sign, elevated white count in a normal urine. Just take him to the operating room and take his appendix out. I think that would still perfectly meet a standard of care. So where the standard of care lies kind of depends on the skill of the practitioner who's doing it at that time. We have lots of surgeons who took out lots of appendices before there was ever a CT scan. Although basically they're saying we're raising the bar. At least that's what they're claiming to do. You know, I've often heard that now that everybody has a CT and everybody can do a CBC and everybody can call up and make a consultation, that there is this idea of regional standards of care really don't apply, that there's really a national view of this. And in fact, doctors in Keokuk, Iowa or wherever, should know as much about this thing as they would in Boston or New York or San Francisco in terms of their knowledge base and have the equipment there that would generally be available to doctors in those other areas as well. Well, I think that that's not incorrect, except there still has to be a range. If you're at XYZ University Center, you can call down the expert in the left eye as opposed to the right eye to look at an ophthalmological problem. You can't do that in a community hospital. Those kinds of forces are not available. So what might be considered reasonable in one situation would not be considered reasonable in others. Let me get back to a grounding in the law here. When negligence is discussed, English law, going back to 1270, which is the first date, by the way, that we have the name of a malpractice case, really deals with four issues. And we need to keep all four of them in line. We have to know what the duty is of that doctor at that moment in time. And the duty is dependent upon the situation. What is the breach of that duty? What did he or she do right or wrong to that patient? Then we have to deal with what was the outcome change. Because if what they did really didn't change the outcome, why are we talking about this? What's the reason for this? And then there's something called proximate cause. What's the relationship between the action or inaction and the harm done to the patient? And this varies place to place, time to time. I will give you a case. An emergency physician was sued over a child who actually died in a house fire. The child, a 15 or 16-year-old, was a runaway, had been into the emergency department because of a urinary tract infection. He treated the urinary tract infection, and that night, in a crash pad for all these kids, a fire took place and the child died. An action was brought against the emergency physician, said if only you'd maintained that child in the emergency department, they wouldn't have died in the fire. Well, that's probably true. If he'd kept him, they wouldn't have died in the fire. But there's no relationship between his workup of a urinary tract infection and the death of that child. He had no independent obligation to know that there was going to be a house fire. He had no obligation to act as policeman of the world. What he did for the chief complaint was correct. We have to be very careful that we don't mix and slop over these concepts when we talk about malpractice. We need to go religiously through duty, breach, harm done, and proximate cause. And if you don't meet all four tests, in my opinion, you haven't shown malpractice practice. What I dislike intensely is the emergency department expert 
who says, well, I believe they violated the standard by not doing X, Y, or Z. And then when you ask the next question, well, how did that change the outcome? He says, well, I'm not sure, really. I'm not an expert in outcomes. You know what? If you don't know enough of your business that you can't put X, Y, and Z together, duty, breach, harm done, and proximate cause, you shouldn't be saying that another physician has mal... That brings up the question then of who should be an expert? Who are these experts? What defines an expert? So it seems that the expert and the lawyer and the jury are defining the standard of care. We know who the jury is. They're people who are off the street, sometimes incredibly smart, sometimes less sophisticated. Who are the experts? Let me ask about this jury business because on one of the prior tapes, I made a kind of a glib comment about their people is not smart enough to get out of jury duty. And I really don't mean that, actually. That's just a cheap shot. The fact of the matter is, in Los Angeles now, it's virtually impossible to get out of jury duty. They don't care what you are, what you do, you got to be in jury duty. And I think, actually, that's a good thing. It's a move in the right direction. Before, doctors always got out of being on jury duty because they had to take care of their patients and emergencies and all this other stuff. So we could talk about these jury thing forever, but I want to know right now, who is... Or who should be an expert witness? Who are the expert witnesses right now in emergency medicine? And who should be the expert witness? For example, we talked about this earlier. If there's somebody who's done all the research in the entire planet on meningitis and can sniff out meningitis behind a shrub from 20 feet, should that person be the person who's going to prosecute me for missing meningitis? Or should it be somebody who's about my level of training who's a general emergency physician? That person can speak to questions of outcome. They can speak to questions on percentages with regard to workup studies, that sort of thing. But the person who should speak, should be allowed to speak for or against you, is somebody who actually does practice of emergency medicine. All 50 states, the various regions we deal with, have different sets of rules about this. In certain states, the state of California, for example, you have to be a board-certified emergency physician to speak against an emergency physician. I don't think you need to be board-certified, but you have to be an emergency physician. You have to have significant practice in emergency medicine, whereas in a lot of states, I was in one the other day, as a matter of fact, testifying, and it will remain nameless, where all they had to say, they didn't even have to be an emergency physician, and the expert on the other side just mouthed these words, I am familiar with the standard of care of what the boys do down in the emergency department. He was actually, this expert, was a retired gynecologist from Cleveland who was speaking about a problem that he had never actually dealt with in his life, but he was willing to utter those words which met the law in that particular state. I am familiar with the standard of care. Now, you and I, the three of us sitting around a table, that incenses me that a court would allow him to testify. The court system says, well, this will become evident to the jury when we vordure the expert. That is, they talk about their various credentials. Nonetheless, the court in that case allowed that doctor to speak against an emergency physician, and I think it's incorrect. It should not be that way. When we talk about experts, let's divide this, what we think they ought to be versus what the court system says, because who is an expert in court is what that judge in that jurisdiction says is an expert on that particular day. And it's not what you and I would think. If you and I were sitting in a room, let's say we're going to a lecture at ASEP, we would expect the person lecturing to have some academic background in that subject, to have published, 
to have done some work, to have done the research, to give he or she that credibility to be allowed to speak to us. We wouldn't go to a presentation where the expertise was in question. And yet in court, if they breathe regularly and have a license in some state, in fact, they don't even have to breathe regularly. They can breathe irregularly and have an active license in some state. Some court systems will allow them to speak as a quote-unquote expert. And it is clearly a weakness of the system. I would agree. I would think the juries would pick this up. And I think experts like that are attracted because they can't get really bona fide experts to take their case. And so they wind up with a gynecologist who's retired. Well, in that particular case, not only was he a retired gynecologist, but he was an idiot and a clown and made a very poor witness. Just understand, even if he was a retired gynecologist who married a very good witness, who was a great presenter. Again, medicine is like law. It's show business for ugly people. We're all in show business. If the show is good, that's what it is. This is a Broadway play with only 12 critics. Those 12 critics sit in a box and they don't necessarily know anything about the science. Just understand you present this to 12 people who wouldn't know the science involved in some of these things to save their life. So the logic has to look good to them. And there are certain phrases which every time I hear them drive me crazy. Well, doctor, it wouldn't have hurt to run that test, would it? You say, you and I don't think like that as a physician. On that basis, we can do everything to everybody. We ought to do your colonoscopy right now, Rick. Because Bend just, over, big fella. <laughs> just because the chances are, there may be an infinitesimally small chance that over the last two years you've developed a lesion. Where does reasonableness begin here? You could dump the entire gross national product into healthcare if you wanted to, and we're moving in that direction. We're actually quite successful right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Well, yes. I have a question then that, that comes up. So let's say I'm getting sued. I did something and it's marginal, and I think that I did perfectly well. They get an expert who's a retired pathologist on my Mr. Pendicitis. And what is my recourse as the person being sued to say this expert who's a retired pathologist who's never practiced emergency medicine is clearly bogus, what can I do to make sure that I'm going to get judged or have an expert witness that is going to judge me on a reasonable standard of care as defined by they at least do something that's similar to what I do? Well, you can't affect the expert on the other side very much. That will be determined by the court. Your attorney needs to challenge it, and your attorney needs to adequately work up that particular expert run them through the process to decide what cases they've testified in, what they've said in various cases. That's the role of your attorney. What you need to do, if sue, is to make sure you've met with counsel. Because lawyers are, are like everyone else. There are good ones and bad ones. There's those who knows and those who don't. I've met lawyers currently practicing who don't know about the ASEP reaffirmation statement for experts. They don't know about it. Well, I think that's inexcusable at this point in time. But you know what? If they don't know, you need to educate your own lawyer on some of these aspects. The other thing is, you know the field. You can give them the names of major people who can act as your defense expert. People who know how to present and actually have credibility in the specialty. A real expert gives you credibility. That's what they come in with. They come in with a name and a reputation, and they come in with a sense of what the real practice of medicine is, and you should not be passive if you're the doctor sued. 
you need to work interactively with your attorney to pick out a real expert. It's right now where that's exactly what happened. I think the malpractice attorney we're using is really very good. He suggested an emergency physician who is, to my understanding, just a community emergency physician. He might be well-dressed and present himself well, but he had no expertise unique to this topic that we were involved in, nor did he have any academic credentials in terms of being a powerhouse. He was just a community doc. And we were able to suggest that there may be other people who could do a better job for us in this particular case in terms of having academic credentials that were specific to the nature of what we were being involved in. And that person was chosen. So it was a great example of where we were able to affect the expert that was involved in our case. I want to educate the listeners right now in a very particular, very specific lawsuit, which took place in federal court. And it's known as Daubert, D-A-U-B-E-R-T versus Merrill Dow. And it has become a standard across the United States to be involved in what they call a Daubert challenge. In the Daubert case, one of the experts, and this is not a medicine case, this is not an emergency medicine case, but it had a science basis. One of the experts absolutely was approved by the court, but what he had to say was absolute crap. Nobody agreed with it. There was not a minority opinion that would agree with this. And I think that emergency physicians, it all depends on your, the jurisdiction you're in. But many of the state's courts have represented, at least to the medical community, that they will respect a Daubert challenge. So if you think that the testimony being given under oath on a particular case is absolute scientific rubbish, then your attorney ought to actually propose a Daubert challenge. That is, go to the court and say, we believe that he does not represent a reasonable minority opinion on this. This should not be considered a standard of care. And many of the states will respect a Daubert v. Merrill Dow type challenge. And I think that we need to pay attention to that sort of thing. Secondly, if they're a member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, there is an expert witness reaffirmation statement. There should be no case in emergency medicine goes forward today that where both sides' experts have not read agreed with each point, signed and notarized a reaffirmation statement. The last point of which is you're willing to have your testimony reviewed by the Ethics Committee of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And if you're not willing to stand in front of your colleagues in open review and say, yes, this does represent the scientifically based standard of care at this moment in time, then I have no idea why you should be considered an expert. Now, the discussion has been, well, this is intimidation of a witness. Well, screw that. I think that if you're not willing to be reviewed by your colleagues, then you have no business speaking in a court of law, either for or against a physician. I think this is a brilliant idea. AEM is doing something similar to that. If you think that there is an expert out there that's going after emergency physicians and what he is saying or she is saying is egregious, then they are actively looking at the testimony given and they want to produce a list. Now, this could be bad, but I think they even are now producing a list of people who they consider bad experts that are doing it for cash who uh, should not be doing it. What do you think of that? Well, I think that, again, if what they're saying is the truth, I don't care why they're doing it. It's not up to me to decide what's in the hearts and minds of physicians. If you've used your professional time and you charge reasonable professional money, I don't care. 
What I'm interested in is the quality of the testimony. If the quality of the testimony is reasonable science, then let the chips fall where they may. And I think that's fine. It's when it does not represent what the true standard of care is that I think that's hogwash. If someone said, well, on every headache case, we test the first cranial nerve as part of the cranial nerve exam, I'd say you're smoking dope. That's a lie. I don't know anybody who does that. Or on every case, we check accommodation reflex. Most doctors don't even know what the accommodation reflex is anymore and certainly couldn't draw out the neuropathway. So whenever you see that kind of testimony, it's beyond the pale. It sticks out there as being absolutely egregious. and We need to do something about it. I know the question comes up about, well, are you intimidating witnesses? All I can say is, if you're ashamed to speak in front of your colleagues, then maybe you need to reassess what you are saying. Absolutely. I misspoke when I say I did it for cash because we see patients for cash and that's not bad. So that's not what I meant. What I was saying exactly. If you have a group of people, a group of experts that are just bad at it, there should be some recourse for us as a group to say, these people really are bad. And you could do this, what is it? The Merrill Dow? What is it? Yeah. Tell us to do this thing again. Uh, that's Daubert. Daubert. So the Daubert, Daubert challenge. Tell me how that works. So I'm listening to this expert and I'm sitting there and I'm like, this person really is brain dead. Do I then turn to my attorney and say, do the Dolbert challenge right now? What do you do? Does she could handshake and run up there? And depends what on happens? The, it all depends on the court system involved. Clearly in federal court, the Daubert case was an initial federal court case. And in the federal court system, if your case is in federal court, it's very simple to have read the expert's report and to say, we do not believe this represents even a substantial minority viewpoint in this particular discipline or this particular science. And then there's some onus put on the other side to produce that information that, yes, this is considered to be a perfectly reasonable opinion or way to go. Some states have recognized this. Some haven't. Some have a variation or a modification of Daubert. The other name for it is junk science, where people are actually putting things forward as a scientific principle, as if it is something that's proven, that's recognized by everyone, where it isn't. And I think that this is a perfectly valid way to go. The other people are taking other measures. ASAP has got the ability, and they have not only read testimony and then issued letters of censure. I believe as of this point, three people have received letters of censure. If that's known, after all, the first question to that person then in their next case is, isn't it true, doctor, that your own organization of physicians has censured you because of objectionable testimony? The day that's out, their career as an expert is done. They'll cut the legs right out from under them. So that's one way to go. What AAEM is actually doing is posting testimony on a website where you actually read the testimony publicly. That's perfectly legal to do, by the way, because testimony, sworn statements, are public record. If I had the money, I could publish your deposition in the New York Times if I wanted to, because after all, it's filed with the court system. Those documents, except in rare cases of certain kinds of public interest, they are released and they're available for anyone's reading. You can get that stuff. I think that if there's objectionable depositions being given, they should be sent to ASEP, they should be sent to AAEM, send them to me, send them to anybody you want, 
But somebody ought to take some action, and that ought to be known when these cases come up. And I think that we've been too kind, we've been too polite, we've been too gentlemanly in dealing with this situation. I've got Tom McAndrews on the line. Tom, Greg Henry, Mel Herbert, and yours truly, Rick Ricotta, appreciate your taking our call this afternoon. I've known Tom for a number of years professionally. He's with uh, Reback McAndrews and KJAR down in Manhattan Beach, and he has come to the rescue of our doctors in our uh, emergency department uh, a couple of times, and I'm proud to say not one, well, I think maybe one dollar has, has changed hands, but not too many, thanks to uh, Tom's efforts on our behalf. Tom, the question we have for you, I've heard a lot of physicians who have been sued being concerned that the expert witnesses testifying against them are either exaggerating what they think to be the standard of care or even frankly outright fabricating what the standard of care is. And I see doctor after doctor after doctor being upset about the quality and the testimony being used against them. What kinds of things do you do in trial to kind of counteract this effect? Well, I think it is a very legitimate concern in your specialty and quite candidly in most of the other specialties that there are those groups of experts that have a tendency to stretch the truth, so to speak, and misrepresent things in front of the jury. And what we have found to be most effective is to lay the appropriate groundwork prior to the case going to trial and do it during the discovery phase. One of the things that we have had success with is we actually keep track of all expert depositions that we've taken, and when we come up against experts, we go to our own expert library to pull out depositions where the opposing expert has testified against us in other cases, and we also will do trial and jury searches to see if these experts have testified in other cases in an effort to get them in contradictions. That's one of the ways that you can surprise them at trial. The other thing that we have found to be pretty effective is during the course of the deposition, find all their opinions and the basis for their opinions and determine which literature they believe supports their position and then go do the necessary research and be able to impeach them either with the literature that they're relying upon or other comparable literature. And we've actually found it to be pretty effective. Jurors actually like to see articles or listen to articles being read there are some foundational problems you have evidentiary-wise getting the actual article in, but certainly you can get them to agree to what is in the article. And particularly in the field of emergency medicine in California, the experts are required to be in the active practice of emergency medicine on a regular basis. It can't be somebody from a crossover specialty or somebody that's retired four or five years earlier. But the best thing I think you can really do and what we've had success with, it's the preparation before you get to trial and not really waiting until trial to try to get prepared for them. Yeah, Tom, this is Greg Henry. I'm certainly well aware that in the federal court system, the feds have recognized a case called Daubert versus Merrill Dow, in which an expert, not a medicine-related case, by the way, but one which uh, in which an expert was giving testimony which was considered to be egregious. And basically the federal decision in that case was, if testimony, you have a perfect right to challenge testimony, which really does lie outside of what would be considered what a reasonable group of physicians would consider the standard of care. But I know some states are doing this now. Isn't that true? It is true. Dalbert, the, the case you're referring to, really addresses kind of the, the novel scientific evidence approach where it's new trends in medicine that may not have been tested. There are some guidelines that Dalbert requires and it's a three-pronged test. It's whether the method can and has been tested. The second prong is whether or not it's been subjected to peer review and publication. 
and the third is has it gained general acceptance. Primarily, it's the latter two prongs that make it a lot more difficult to get egregious testimony in. And I think we can all agree that all the peer-reviewed journals sometimes publish things that are contradicted even with the same volume, case studies that come to different conclusions. But what it requires is something more than that, the fact that it's actually gained general acceptance. And that's the critical issue as far as talking about Daubert. In California, they, they don't use the Daubert approach. They actually use the older Kelly Fry approach, which just requires that the reliability be established and that the expert can demonstrate that it's generally accepted within the medical community and that the expert himself is properly qualified and can show, at least in testing, that the proper procedures were used. This, I think, in conjunction in California with Health and Safety Code Section 1799, which requires specifically using emergency medicine specialists to testify on standard of care, we have a little bit of a benefit here, and it's a little more narrow than the Daubert approach, although as far as emergency medicine is concerned, I don't think Daubert's going to be a real big factor because it really does go to novel scientific evidence. And when you're getting at issues like that, you know, if you see a patient come up with acute coronary syndrome, well, you know, that, that's the more recent term for coronary artery disease or ischemia, and they're using that, and it's making it a little more broad and encompassing, but it's something that kind of goes back a lot longer than that, and usually the emergency room physician will generally call on a specialist anyway. So I wouldn't be as concerned with Dalbert. I'd be more concerned with this guy's coming in and testifying beyond what is generally accepted within the scientific community as far as emergency medicine is concerned. Tom, you're well aware that a lot of the specialty societies, orthopedics, neurosurgery, and now emergency medicine, have set up within their professional organizations a method to go back and, uh, let's say, review questionable testimony. What are your thoughts about the potential pitfalls of this for the average physician who wants to go back after, quote-unquote, an egregious uh, testifier? I think that that potentially has a whole host of concerns, quite frankly. If the physician that has given testimony that may not be supported by the literature, but he says in his own experience it works, and if somebody reports him and for some reason he loses his licensing or uh, for some reason is kicked out of the society and it impacts his earnings, that's a pretty dicey issue. I don't know that I'd want to be on one side of that because then you end up being, you know, turn around and getting sued for that, to be honest with you. I know that a lot of these specialties have begun to look into it and investigate their peers to testify to things that aren't necessarily true. And in some groups, they've said, well, you no longer can be a member of this society. It is maybe a way of policing within your own group, but I also think that there are potential pitfalls, and I think I would think long and hard before I did it if I was an individual physician because the ramifications can be somewhat disconcerting. And I think we all recognize that even with some of the more far-reaching things that they testify to, odds are they can find some literature somewhere to support their position. Tom, I have a specific question that came up recently, and that was there was a gentleman who was giving expert testimony against a group and this group happened to know who this physician was. And they thought that the expert testimony that this doctor was going to give was bogus. They thought it was really quite rank. And they felt they knew this guy personally, that they should call him before he gave his testimony to suggest that uh, maybe what he was saying in his written testimony was bogus. Is that considered a bad thing to do if you know an expert to call them, to contact them before it goes to trial, to tell them I, not I, to give I that would... testimony? I would always recommend against doing that because if that expert that you're going to contact doesn't back down and the case does go to trial, one of the questions you are sure to hear is, 
Well, did you ever get a call from the group about what your testimony was going to be, and did they try to sway you one way or the other? You, as the group, then loses all credibility with the jury because you're trying to, you know, kind of through the back door lean on someone to say something that, you know, whether you agree with it or not, it just it looks like undue influence, and it looks like you're trying to hide something. So I, I, I always caution my clients never to talk to the experts. If the expert has a question, they do it through me. If, if my client has a suggestion to the expert, they will do it through me. But never under any circumstance would I suggest you contact an expert directly. Yeah, that really smacks, I think, of intimidating a witness. You know, there are criminal penalties for something like that. You need to be very, very careful. Anytime you're into ex parte communication of anybody, the patient, an expert, another treating physician, I think in general these kind of contacts should be made through counsel if they're made at all and be very careful of intimidation. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think you're, just, you're barking up the wrong tree. It is unethical and it just looks bad anyway. Yeah, Sopranos use that technique all the time. Hey, you, you got you got a nice practice of medicine there. We wouldn't want to see anything happen to that practice. Right? Yeah. Very true. Very true. Well, Tom, thanks very much for your time. We oh, very much pleasure. appreciate it. You gave some good tips here, and we hope to be in contact with you in the future. All right. If you have any questions, feel free to call. Thanks, Thank Tom. You. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Well, we have an audio letter slash question from one of our doctors who listens in California. Thanks, Mel. My name is Dr. Scott Brewster. I'm the director of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Encino Tarzana Regional Medical Center. One of the questions I wanted to ask you guys, the patient that comes into the emergency department that's evaluated by the physician, and once evaluated by the physician, then decides to leave against medical advice, what is the documentation, what are the explanations, and how does a physician keep themselves squeaky clean from a medical legal aspect? I think that this has matured over the last few years so that there really is an understanding, a generalized understanding about this in the country. First point I want to make is the piece of paper, the against medical advice form, is not the same as the process of against medical advice. The piece of paper actually means nothing. Because you've gotten somebody to scribble their name on the bottom, do you think they know what it meant? They could still be intoxicated, full of drugs, totally incapacitated, and still sign or scrawl on that piece of paper. Secondly, we have patients who leave against medical advice who are jerks and refuse to sign anything. Because they didn't sign doesn't mean you haven't carried out the process. So I think it's the five-part legal process is the basis and not something scribbled on the bottom of a piece of paper. Let me just review the legal process, and I will say this. I've looked at a lot of these situations over the years. Whereas consent itself is not much of an issue, informed refusal is what AMA is. These are people who do not want to take the advice of intelligent medical practitioners. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say you went to the best stockbroker in the world. You say, okay, what should I do? And he says, buy X stock. And you said, no. Well, the real question is, why did you go to him if you didn't want to follow the advice? In AMA cases, everything actually turns on really two issues. That has to do with the question of capacity of the individual also, those people, are they of sound mind? Can they understand the discussion going on around them? And are they old enough to make the decision? There is a landmark case, 1913, Schollendorf versus Society of New York Hospitals. The Schollendorf case was decided by a Justice Cardozo. 
Cardozo is famous for several things, one of which is he went from the New York Supreme Court to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Cardozo Doctrine basically says this, those of adult years and sound mind may determine their own health care. That means a doctor doesn't have the right to inflict care upon you if you are able to make a decision and can participate. Obviously, if you're an 11-year-old and you're brought in from a bus accident, 11-year-olds don't get to decide whether they get health care or not. Somebody else will act either as the parent may act or a substitute judgment person. If there was no parent around and I was there, I would function, as the lawyers say, in loco parentes. That doesn't mean your parents are loco. That means (laughs) I am the parent on the site who has taken the parent role and will then decide what will be done at that moment in time. So let's assume that the patient we're dealing with is of adult years, 18 and above, whatever your state defines. The next question is, are they of sound mind? And if they are not of sound mind, you have an obligation to act in their defense. As soon as the nursing note says slurred speech, staggering gait, those people aren't of sound mind. And you know what? You never get sued on that end of the spectrum. If I ever get sued for strapping somebody down who's intoxicated, let's say I got whatever they had, they wake up the next morning, they're fine, and they go home. Now he brings a legal action. Well, you didn't have the right to do that. You know what? I did have the right to do that. If they ever went to a jury, I would just look at the jury when it came my time to speak and said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, did I tie that person down? Yes, I did. I did for them, which I would do for anyone else I cared about my mother or my brother or anyone else that I really wanted to take care of. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if I am guilty, it is guilty of loving too much. (laughs) But the point is, I'm about to gag. (laughs) You know what? Everybody understands the fact that we have to make decisions. And what do you want to be sued for? Nonfeasance, letting someone like that go who then gets hit by a bus or malfeasance, holding them against their will. I know the side I'm going to err on, and that is if I think they have inadequate mental status, I'm going to hold them. Yeah, I think it's really pretty straightforward. And you often see physicians who seem to be torn by this. It's very straightforward. Once you, as a clinician, decide that this person is incompetent and you've so documented it, they're yours. Have you ever noticed the more intoxicated a person becomes, the more knowledgeable of the law they become as well (laughs) they know the rights and they're able to leave against medical advice and all that the drunker they are yeah yes in fact it's pretty common to say well you know i i've got an attorney and whenever they do that i always say you i'm gonna see you yeah i always say what's your attorney's name they come up with a name i say listen we know each other we play golf twice a week he'll never take the case lay down there be quiet if they do come up with a name and they actually have somebody we want to call you know what? You can't find them. I promise you that. We've tried. And so we will come up with any delaying tactic we need to to keep them around for a while. This actually came up to me on my New Year's Eve overnight shift at County where I had exactly that. A guy that was intoxicated and he wanted to leave. We determined that he had a bonk on the head. There was a few things we should do before he left. And he said, you have no right. You cannot hold me against my will. And I took a little bit of joy, maybe too much more than saying, saying, look, sir, we can do it the easy way or the hard way. I'm just trying to look after you. I'm worried about you, but do not question this. If you try and leave, I can hold you against what you want. I can do that. And it was quite a revelation to him. And it was also a revelation, amazingly, to a number of the nurses and other stuff saying, can you really do that? Oh, yeah, I can. I can do that. Not you're only re- can you do You're it. required to do that. Yes, exactly. If you let someone out 
who you can document is having altered mental status. Again, we'll give you the case. This is a case from a major hospital in Detroit, which will remain nameless. Where, is it uh, named after the not, owner no, of a car? Yeah, a we're not going there. The, <laughs> uh, the patient was giving the nurse a hard time. Nurse goes up to a second-year resident and says, this guy wants to sign out AMA. Well, what do you think the response of the emergency resident was? Yippee! <laughs> you know, one more jerk, go on, that I don't have to work on. So they had him sign the Against Medical Advice form, which was a scrawl. Of course, he walks outside and is hit by a Detroit bus on West Grand Boulevard in Detroit. And now when he comes back in, there's no waiting. Okay, he's seen immediately. <laughs> they put him right on the cot, not a problem. Weren't you just here? Yeah, weren't you just here? Exactly. And, of course, what does that chart say? It says slurred speech, trouble walking, rude, obnoxious, all the usual things the nurses would note. And what it basically said was this is a guy who's incapacitated. At trial, the first expert for the plaintiffs was a neuropsych guy who they had his previous signatures from checks and that sort of thing. He was an auto worker. And then they had the scrawl that was on that form. They asked the neuropsych guy, what does that scrawl indicate? He says, psychomotor impairment. Then they asked the $2 million question. Would that degree of psychomotor impairment mean that the patient lacked the capacity to make intelligent judgments about his own health care? He said, absolutely. No one with that degree of psychomotor impairment can be asked to make reasonable decisions. Let me jump in here and summarize that segment because it's very important. We were talking about AMA, Against Medical Advice, and the various aspects of Against Medical Advice, and we're going to talk more about it. But I want to go over Schollendorf versus the Society of New York Hospitals. Now, you can look it up in the written section about exactly the spelling of that, but it was a landmark ruling that said, and I quote directly, every human being of adult years and sound mind has the right to determine what shall be done with his own body. And a surgeon who performs an operation without the patient's consent commits an assault for which he is liable in damages. Now, obviously, this has been extended far beyond surgeons. Now, just as a quick aside, the justice in this case was Justice Cordozo. He was actually a Portuguese Jew, or his family were Portuguese and Jewish and immigrated to the United States. Only the second Jew on the Supreme Court. He also spoke Spanish. Fascinating guy. He was involved in a number of landmark cases before his death in 1938. If you want to read more about him, I suggest Wikipedia. And so the case was Schollendorf versus the Society of New York Hospitals. And it was, as we have heard, if you're of sound mind and of adult years, you get to decide what happens to you. But what if you're not of sound mind? How do we define capacity? That is the next section. Capacity is not determined by calling the psych department or anything like that. You and I make a decision on every patient, every person we see every day as to whether they've got capacity. The question is, can they understand the discussion? Do they have a health problem which is interfering with that? Do they understand when you talk about risks and benefits, about why you want to do something? Can they have a reasonable answer? Here's an example of someone who speaks well, may look quite fine, and you say, why don't you want to stay? And they say, well, I'm going to meet the Lord at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Well, everybody knows the Lord's at Wendy's. (laughs) But if he's bringing me relatively psychotic statements, then my question is, is he a risk to self, not only self, but I believe in a previous episode we talked about third parties. Does he constitute a danger to self or others, read that as third party, by virtue of his mental illness at that moment in time? Here are the other parts that we always look at in a against medical advice case. 
Did you inform them in a language they can understand what you think is going on? Did you let them know what can happen? Did you involve family or friends? Because in most cases, family or friends will solve the problem for you. I guess I've almost never seen the case where an elderly person's daughter or son or somebody, when they want to leave, won't take care of the problem. Usually they say, step out, Dr. Henry. Come back in a minute. We'll take care of this. After all, the reason they brought Grandma is they wanted her to stay at the hospital. They got the two suitcases already. That's right. The positive suitcase sign is the best indication the family wants them to stay. The last thing is, I think the signature is the last and least important part of this. By the way, if they're going to sign, make sure that you sign, the nurse signs. I wouldn't even do this if there's family out in the waiting room unless the family is in there so they can sign. What you want to indicate on that chart is you've gone the extra mile to try and get them the care that they deserve. If you meet that test, you will have no fear from a court of law. I promise you, no lawyer wants that case. I also think that you need to be very direct. You cannot say to the chest pain person who wants to leave, the 45-year-old who's heavily in denial, you may have a dysrhythmia. What, well, okay, what the hell is that? Right. You have to say, you may drop dead. Everybody will understand dropping dead. I've had that specific case where a resident came back to me and said, well, Mr. Smith wants to sign out. Well, I'd seen the initial EKG. He wasn't signing out. I said, what'd you tell him? He said, I told him he was having an acute anterior inferior myocardial infarct. So I just walked back in the room, said, Mr. Smith, looked at your EKG. Says here, you're having a big heart attack. You could fall over flat down on your face just like that, dead. You want to stay? I said, sure, not a problem. In fact, there was a cultural problem there. They came from two different societies, really. The patient thought that the resident was calling him inferior. So I guess he was going to have a superior infarct or nothing. <laughs> so once we got that all straightened around, not a problem. But I think Rick's point is that euphemisms are no good. Dead is easy to understand. You could lose your limb. And as I often tell the story, death is not the worst thing that can happen. Here's the case. 45-year-old, white male, very successful, Harvard MBA, who's giving a presentation to a group of people about a 200-unit condo project. During this, he gets some substernal chest pain. By the time he gets to the emergency department, what's happened? Well, his pain is subsiding. Now the nurses start their procedure. He gets a line. He chews some aspirin, yada, yada. An EKG is done. All of this stuff happens automatically now. First question he asks when the doctor walks in is, what's the EKG show, doctor? Well, an amateur doctor might say it's normal. The smart guy says, I'm concerned. Because you don't want to send the wrong message here. See, people believe that the EKG can actually tell you whether you're infarcting at that moment in time, and that's not right. So now, this guy wants to leave. The person to involve in this is his wife. Get her in there. And the word to use when you're talking in front of her is not death. Death isn't so bad. I mean, she's pretty good looking. He's well insured. She can do better next time. What you talk about is he could be disabled. And now she has a vision of herself pushing this fool around the house in a wheelchair for the next 20 years, wiping his butt. Do you think he's going to be allowed to go home? Not on your life, Jack. So should you keep it specific or should you keep these general? Some people have told me that what you write on every one of these forms, and we've just heard that the form is the least important part of things, but once you get to the form that you should write, leaving against medical advice could result in death or grave disability. 
Is that all you need to write, or do you have to get more specific? You know, your penis may not work, uh, your left toe may fall off, or is death and grave disability enough? Actually, that's not bad, as long as it's said in that way, in the manner which the patient can understand it. And I think that the truth is the smart doc can slick you into almost anything. I mean, it's a bad sign when you have a doctor who sticks out on the against medical advice list. Maybe I've had two patients in the last two years who I've let go against medical advice. I don't even think it's that many because I'll find a way to keep you. I'll do something. I'll invent something. Take their clothes. Even a drunk won't go out naked. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Lose them in x-ray. Okay. (laughs) Process them in some unusual way. You can almost always do something. But if you see a doc who sticks out on that list... That's a doctor-patient communication question. You know, I one guy who years ago worked for us, who at the beginning of the shift put three against medical advice forms in his coat pocket because he took that, it's my way or the highway attitude. And as soon as you get into that, see, you can't argue with the patient. The patient is in charge. So what you do is you get on their side in the discussion. I wouldn't want to stay here either. The food's bad. The mattresses are bad but here's why I want you to stay. By the way, they're always going to come up with unusual stories about why they can't stay. Grandma always has a cat at home. Oh, I like cats. French fried, parboiled. (laughs) But you know what? Do something. Call a neighbor. Call Humane Society. Call a friend. Do whatever you can to get the cat taken care of. I had a guy who once said, I can't stay. Why? My kids get off the bus in a tough neighborhood. We called the police. Could they get his kids? I mean, I always think there's things you can try to do to make things better. By the way, the half a loaf question always comes up. You hear this argument all the time. Well, don't give them anything, and then they'll get really sick and come back. First of all, that's from the Marquis de Sade School of Healthcare. Uh, Sometimes, if you can't get grandma to stay with her pneumonia, would I run her some IV antibiotics and give her orals and send her out? If that's all I could get done... And I would express that on the chart. She wouldn't accept what I wanted, but she would accept this. So half a loaf is better than no loaf. And let's debunk an urban myth right now. People always say, well, if I write down against medical advice, they won't pay for the visit. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. There is no insurance company I know of that has that as a stated policy. And so against medical advice does not mean that they do not get their visit paid for. You know, a couple of other things. One of them is you mentioned, all right, well, we'll give you some treatment now. I think you can also give them, okay, you're not going to come into the hospital. I think you're having an acute coronary syndrome. I will give you nitroglycerin. I want you to take aspirin. I want you to take this. Your blood pressure is high. I want you to take this beta blocker. I'm going to do everything I can for you within the framework that you've allowed me to operate to take care of you. It basically sends a very positive message that I'm not abandoning you. You're welcome to come back at any time. We're still friends. You're not doing what I think you ought to do. That's exactly right, Rick. You always invite them back. You leave as friends. John, if you change your mind, we're open 24 hours a day, happy to see you back. You know what? The federal law says you have to see them back. So you might as well go ahead and invite them But back. human nature is such that if you leave a hospital under bad terms, you're not likely to go back there because you're not going to feel very welcomed, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. This great debate about, well, how good do I make them feel, not feel? You know what? On the way out the door, you might as well be friends again and make sure, I can't reemphasize this enough, the family takes care of 98% of this stuff for you. 
if they feel you're on the side of taking care of the patient, after all, the patient dies, who do you think's left to sue you? The family. And they've got to know that you cared what the outcome was. One of the things I will not do, though, is I won't give you pain medication to relieve the pain from your cellulitis. I'm going to give you lots of antibiotics, but I'm not going to do anything to attenuate your perception of the pain as this thing gets worse. Right. We're now talking about, Rick, is technique. And I think that's right. I think that in that case, that's probably a good thing to do. But I think it's important. I think that if you say, okay, here's some Vicodin for this as well, right. then that person is now in a position to say, the pain wasn't seeming to get any worse. Right. And if they have limited better. money, if they have limited money, which one are they going to get filled, the antibiotic or the Vicodin? I can tell you the answer to that question right now because I've seen that happen. I think one of the things that's also helpful is to treat them as family. I think there's a phrase that you can use that gets you a lot of mileage, and it's basically... Listen, if you're a member of my family, this is what I would recommend. This is what I would do. You take them into the inner circle of those who you raise above the masses and treat as your family. You know, it's interesting, Rick, that you and I are both old doctors now. We've done this a long time. The more I practice, the more I use that phrase. It's a great phrase. Well, if I'm talking to a mother about why I'm not doing a CT scan on her normal child's head after a bump, I say, you know, if that was my child, here's what I would do. They want to hear that. They'd like to know what you do for your own family. They actually think that you would treat your family well. <laughs> what a, what they a, hate the, my family. That's, right. that's, that's right. illusion. That's right. If it was yeah. my family or someone I actually cared about, this is what I would do at this moment in time. That phrase actually gets you more points with the patient than anything else. You've raised them to a different level. Into well, your confidence, right. It's an enormously powerful thing. Again, a case I had recently of a little girl who was sort of bumped by a car on her bicycle and she had possibility of a brief loss of consciousness, but this kid was completely fine, 11 years old, you could talk to them. And there were some people that wanted to scan the girl and there were some people that didn't want to scan her. And so my opinion was, no, this was my son. I don't want him to have all that radiation. He's clearly fine. Let's watch him for four or six hours. And if he's still good at the end of that, and that's exactly the phrase I used because the the parent had now talked to a number of different people and there was some people say scan somebody and they asked me, what would you do? And I said, well, I'll tell you exactly what I do. I have a six-year-old. What I would do is not scan my six-year-old. Let's just watch you for a little while. Now I think that's the right thing to do for somebody that I really care about. Whole demeanor change from they were getting increasingly agitated and aggressive to exactly that. This is what that doctor would do if I was in that position. And, and it you was can't wonderful. Believe, wonderful. You can't believe how powerful it is when you say something like, I wouldn't shoot dangerous ionizing radiation at my own growing child's brain. I don't want to do it to your child either because you look like a competent, reasonable person who can watch that child and will return if there's any problem. And, you know, I'm sure at USC they were sitting around the rating room for a certain amount of time. <laughs> they've already been observed for six hours. <laughs> they've already been observed for six hours. Exactly. The chance They just do it in reverse order there. <laughs> That's we, right. We observe you first and then we see you. Then we see you. Exactly. <laughs> there is one part of this that hasn't been discussed, which I do think is important because I think a lot of doctors get screwed up here. A patient refuses the spinal tap. They're refusing a procedure. They're not saying I'm leaving, but I don't want that test, doctor, and I'm refusing that test. Some people get nuts over that stuff and say, listen, no spinal tap, you're out of here kind of thing. Yep. No, 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 no. Well, actually, Rick, I've had that specific case, and what you could then do is just treat them as if they had it, and you have to tell them, look, 
then I have to assume that this is what you've got. You're going to be given IV antibiotics and some acyclovir and this, that, and another thing. And if they're willing to put up with that at that moment in time, if that's all I can sell, that's what I'm going to do. Again, this is the half a loaf question. I can't get everything I want. I had a young woman one time, 17, sexually active, who had lower abdominal pain and did not want a pelvic exam. Now, I don't know exactly why. And as we got into it, there was no other doctor on shift. There was no female doctor on shift. There was a cultural question here as well. And, you know, you're going to have to make some allowances then and change your workup routine based on what they will allow you to do. Against medical advice is not just leaving. It's whenever you want to do something, a test, procedure, a treatment, that they do not acquiesce to. Then you've got an against medical advice situation. I do think, to be fair, though, you have to indicate on the chart that you've made a reasonable attempt to tell them the importance of the test that they're declining because... For a physician, great, they don't want to do a tap, great, right? No, no, no. I think you have to basically say, these are the reasons I did speak to the person. I did try to convince them. It doesn't absolve you carte blanche. Yeah. By the way, once you get into those questions, the spinal tap is a very good example. I used to carry on a lot more discussion than I do now because I have the ability to make them very happy and very sleepy with medicine through the vein. And if they're terribly afraid and anxious, I give them sedation. They barely, if, if at all, remember the procedure, and they're a lot more comfortable with it. There's some deep-seated fears about what we do and pain that are out there, that if we can do something to relieve that, we get a lot better cooperation from the patients. You know, one of the tricks I use when we have patients like this, and you know, you see them every now and then, I don't want you to do this, and they're aggressive and they're scared, and one of the tricks I use with them and say, look, you're in charge. And I'm here to look after you. And so there's a list of things here that I think we should do, but you're the boss. And I think you should do these things, but I try and give them back some power. As soon as you give them back some power and if you're nice to them, then they'll start getting more on board. So I find that very useful. Yes. At some point when they want to leave against medical advice and I don't want them to, then I make it clear, well, guess what? Now I'm in charge again and you can't leave. (laughs) But for a lot of this stuff, giving them back some power so that having been to the emergency department with relatives in the last few years, it's a frightening experience. And they don't know what the heck's going on. It's always lumbar puncture. And in our population, the Hispanic population, there is this urban myth that every single one of these people has a first-degree relative that is a paraplegic because of a lumbar puncture. Well, they think that the reason they have all that handicapped parking around the hospital <laughs> is for the people you did lumbar punctures to. And so if you could explain to them, look, that really doesn't happen. And if you, like you say, and what are you really worried about? I'm worried that that's going to hurt and it's freaking me out that you're going to put a needle in my back. We're going to sedate you. We're going to make this as painless as possible and you won't remember it. Then they're like, yeah, okay. Can I go back to something you said that I think does need a little clarification? And you've said this many, many times in the past. Something I would say would need clarification. (laughs) I'm shocked. I know that's hard to believe. I do believe that you can create a really, really great AMA form. And we have one. And that AMA form basically has the doctor declare the competency of the patient in their professional judgment. That's the phrase, professional judgment. That's one part. Second part basically has the nurse acknowledged what you have said the third part has the family member acknowledged and the fourth part is your acknowledgement there's four signatures on this piece of paper all looking at different aspects of the same thing and i don't disagree rick what i'm saying is the average against medical advice form in the country doesn't do that i have seen the best one i've ever seen is actually at the hospital a run by roberts jim roberts jim roberts probably stole it from me well whether he did or not (laughs) 
his against medical advice form, I think, is a model for the country. Now, you're going to be getting a lot of people writing in, hey, Jim, can you send us a copy That's, of your form? You know, Jim has to put up with fame. But I think that you're right. If the form is done correctly, it's fine. The point I'm making is most of these forms don't begin to touch on the five points we talked about. Your form, I'm sure Jim's form, they do. And if that's what happens, great. This is just a method of recording on the chart. I don't care where you record it. You can record it, you know, on the back of the chart. You can record it anywhere you want. But I want to be able to have it somewhere stated that you've gone through this process. You see, against medical advice, here's the thinking change in emergency docs. It is not a signature on a piece of paper. It's a five-part legal process. But the form can help you remember all of those elements of the process, which you may not, particularly younger physicians or less experienced physicians, this issue of competence is extraordinarily important. Right. It absolutely is. And I think you've given us another way of thinking about it. And that is the form needs to reflect the process, not some Right. Line. You're talking about bad forms. Bad forms. And, but believe me, in this country, if I went around to 4,400 emergency departments, most of them would have a form which does not meet the test that you and I have just talked about. I've got two questions then. One is to get you to summarize exactly what those five parts are. But first of all, are there scenarios, because I was involved with one of these more than 10 years ago, where somebody has a lethal condition, in this case it was a big anterior MI, and they appeared to be quite able to make decisions for themselves. This person was 86 years old, and he had decided that there was a very good chance that he was going to die from this, whether he stayed in the hospital, whether he went home. He seemed to understand the risks and benefits. And he said, I promised myself I was not going to die in the hospital. And I'll take your aspirin. I'll take your beta blocker. And I would prefer to go home and die. And I want to do that. We had psychiatry and other people come. And in the end, and there were some very senior emergency physicians that you know that stood around the bedside and talked to this guy. And they all decided, you know what? This guy has this right to go home and die if he wants. And yes, he, he went does. home. And he died 48 hours later. And a I happy agree man, I'm sure. I agree he has a right to do that. I wouldn't acquiesce, by the way, to thinking you need psychiatry. Tell me what psychiatry brings to that table which you don't have. Well, it was more, if this went bad, the family sued us, it's nice to go to the judge with your friends. You know, come on, we'll all pile in the minivan together and we'll take the carpool lane. That makes the defense box just that much more crowded. That's like bringing on a neurologist <laughs> in the TPA cases. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Somebody else to hold your hand when you're screwing up. So you suggest that we don't need psychiatry and make the decisions there, all our decisions. Are there times when psychiatry can help you? Well, I think if you've got a patient who may be psychotic, maybe quite erudite and quite articulate, and yet their thought process may be slightly deranged. If you have the luxury of that, that's terrific. But I bet most docs that we deal with, listen to this program, don't have a psychiatrist sitting down the hallway who can drop down and say hello. To get a psychiatrist, I mean, the last time I saw a psychiatrist in our department, it was a patient who'd cut himself. That's not what actually happens in the country. To have somebody from, quote-unquote, mental health, a mental health worker, come in, what do they bring to the table? I'm just asking the question. What do they bring to the table that the three of us don't bring to the table? In your case, I would make sure that that person's had a decent blood pressure, that there's no issues of perfusion, decent oxygenation, and in your professional opinion, was this person competent to make the decision? The answer is yes, they're out the door. So the next question that I want to ask is, Tell me again, make it clear, what are the five elements of informed refusal? Okay, let's go back to the Justice Cardozo doctrine as expressed in the decision 
Schollendorf versus Society of New York Hospitals. Number one, that they have attained adult years. They have the age of majority on their side, or they've been declared, in the case of teenagers, they've been declared emancipated and able to make their own decisions. Number two, they have the mental capacity to understand the issues being discussed. Not that they will make a good judgment, but they have the hardware to make a reasonable decision. And somebody who's slurring their speech, can't ambulate, is confusional at the time. Let's just assume that those people cannot actually act in their own self-defense. Third point would be that you have told them what you think they've got and what you think they can happen in a language they can understand. Don't know euphemisms here. If you think they could die, they can die. If you think they could lose their limb, they could lose their limb. If you think their kidneys could fail, you've told them that. But it's got to be something that they can understand. Next, if there is alternative therapy which is reasonable, you've presented it, and why it is or isn't appropriate. The last thing is involvement of family or friends. You can do this in multiple ways, but family and friends will take care of 95% of these questions, particularly in the elderly. If they have family members there and you want them to come in, the chances they're going home are real small. I think that you can bring that to the forefront. The last issue would be signatures. You can't do the signatures until you've done the other parts of against medical advice. The signature is not the process. We need to hammer that home. Signature is not the process. It's the process which will be tried if this goes to court. One of the things that you mentioned, which we didn't cover, which we, I think we should, is you talked about you have to be the right age. You have to be 18, 21, whatever it is in your state. But there is this issue of emancipated minors, and we should throw that in at the same time. Well, I think that we may, in another session, actually get to talk about emancipation, because it's not a simple issue. And it varies state to state. If you're in Utah, it's much tougher to get than if you're in California, or if you're in the state of New York. It's where the state has actually declared that someone is living independent of their parents, providing their own support, making their own day-to-day decisions. Married. Married. In some states, if you have a child, then you can become emancipated. It's interesting that motherhood can emancipate you. Fatherhood does not in some of these states. Military service. Military service. But you got to remember, by the time you're going to military service, you've got to have been at least 17 And I think that I'm not even sure that that's still valid anymore. And one of the things that you brought up was an 18, 17-year-old who's living on their own, making their own money. And those are actually reportable cases. Those cases don't really exist. Yes, I'm very interested (laughs) in the 31 and 32-year-olds who are not living on their own (laughs) and not making their own children. They all come back after college. Exactly right. They live in my house. They have a two-suitcase sign at your front door kind of thing. (laughs) Well, let's do the all-important end of CD summary. The first part of the CD, we talked about standard of care. And the standard of care is defined as what a similarly trained emergency physician would have done under similar circumstances. But we went further than that. That the standard of care is defined by the jury decision on that day. And the jury decision on that day is defined by what your experts say, what their experts say, how smart your lawyer is, how smart their lawyer is. So the standard of care is very complicated. But again, in simple terms, it's, if you've got a good lawyer and a good expert, what a similarly trained emergency physician would have done under similar circumstances. And that can be 
a substantial minority of emergency physicians. Not everybody does it the same way, but there's a substantial and smart minority of emergency physicians that would have done this. That can be the standard of care. We talked about negligence and that there are a number of elements to negligence. There has to be duty on the part of the physician. There has to be breach of that duty. There has to be a bad outcome change as a result of what you did. And there has to be proximate cause. Just because something bad happened and you were there, did it really cause the bad thing in the end? We talked a lot about medical experts and who they should be. And in general, we decided that they should be somebody who knows emergency medicine, that practices emergency medicine in a similar environment if possible. And if possible, they should be an expert in that area. That would be the perfect person. And we also believe somebody who does this fairly frequently so they know the rules of the game. We also knew, we also noted that if the person giving expert testimony is off the planet, if the science is wrong, if they are bogus, frankly, then you can do a Dolbert challenge. Dolbert versus Merrill Dow. And you can have your attorney do a Dolbert challenge. We also went further and said that there are societies like ASEP and AAEM and other societies that have actually requested that they be told when people are giving bogus expert testimony so that we can stop them doing that. And this is very important. We talked about AMA, that against medical advice is much, much more than about getting the patient to sign a little piece of paper. It is a legal process of informed refusal. It is a legal process of informed refusal, remembering the Schollendorf versus Society of New York Hospitals case, which says that a person of sound mind and of adult age can refuse care. And so informed refusal, follow those lines. But if the patient is not of sound mind or adult years, then you can care for them against their will. And the smart doctor will involve family and friends in order to help you do the right thing for this patient. You should offer them the next best level of care. You should tell them that they can come back. And you should, again, have the family come in to help you with these discussions. One more time, the elements of refusal of care, you have to be of adult years, you have to have the right mental capacity in order to make these decisions. You must tell them what will happen if they don't do what you have suggested. You have to offer them alternative therapy. These are the important segments of this CD. We have 60 seconds left for the wine of the month. Go, Greg. We're not going to spend that much money. We want stuff which is a bargain. Let me give you the extremes in California of craziness. There is a, a vineyard called Screaming Eagle. A Screaming Eagle makes fantastic wine. There's no question about it. Some of their stuff is as good a wine as I've ever had. But the 2003 Cabernet Sauvignon, well, it's all grown in Napa, is now going at 500 bucks a bottle. I mean, these have got to be people who, who, to whom money is no object. And yet, at a winery, which is not very far away, we could take something like uh, Saddleback Cellars. They make great wine for less money than you would put in for a tenth or a fifteenth of that bottle. You can get great stuff. They've got a great Merlot at 36 bucks a bottle. 36 bucks a bottle versus 500 Come on, give me a break. That's a lot of expensive urine. That's a lot of expensive urine. And I think that uh, tip of the month, this one is Screaming Eagle, only if someone else is footing the bill. <laughs> Saddleback uh, sellers, if the money's got to come out of your pocket. A wine serving tip is you always open with your best bottle. Because by the third bottle, 
you could be serving uh, Mad Dog 2020 <laughs> and no one would know what you're doing. So always open up with a good one. Move on to something else. I just want to ask one question. Is it still considered gross that if you just drank a $500 bottle of wine um, to drink your own urine? Because at that point, I would seriously consider it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Greg, and thank you, Rick. Well, are we signing off, guys? That's I think it? we should. I think we are. And this is Greg. Rick. And Rick and Mel. And Mel. And uh, we'll talk to you next month. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.